Hey, Paula. Hey, Matze. Good to see you. Nice to see you. What should we do about this 4S and East panel about hacker cultures that we promised to run this summer? I know, and it all went wrong because of the coronavirus, and now everything went online. Yeah, it's all on Zoom, I'm afraid. I know, not so exciting. No, what if we instead made a podcast out of it? I know, and forced everyone to turn their panel conference papers into podcast episodes. They will love it. They'll love it. Let's do it. (laughs) This is Hacker Cultures, the conference podcast. This year, COVID-19 turned most conferences virtual. So to combat Zoom fatigue, we decided to try another format and turn a conference session into a podcast. This series comes to you from the 2020 Joint 4S East Conference. I'm Paula Bielski, and along with my co-host, Mase Oyala, we're talking with all sorts of researchers who study what it is to be a hacker and what hacking, programming, tinkering, and working with computers is all about. As a technical note, some of this audio was recorded through Zoom. The audio might not be at its best, but it hopefully doesn't affect the content our researchers aim to get across. In this session, we'll be talking to Jeremy Grossman. Jeremy is a PhD student at the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Namur in Belgium. His work sits between computer science on the one hand and philosophy on the other. Jeremy, as a philosopher, talks today about his deep dive into the daily practices of engineers, practices like implementations, experiments, or publications. He says that these practices force engineers to complicate the separation between algorithms on one hand and problems on the other. His work focuses on a character named Robin, an engineer working on recommender systems, who he ethnographically observed in his research project. Now in today's session, he'll focus on describing one bit of Robin's work in order to hopefully teach us something about what algorithms as objects are in between abstract mathematical objects and concrete material objects. And he will also attempt to give us an insight into engineering endeavors at large. So let's go to Jeremy's talk. Uh, wonderful. So now we're on to Jeremy Grossman. Jeremy Grossman, I'm super excited also to invite Jeremy. And I mean, I, I want to be a little bit like a sort of a bit, bit of honesty here that I've been writing my book that I've been trying to write for the last four years. And Jeremy has been my writing buddy, which I recommend to everyone to have a writing buddy. And I'm uh, super excited to have Jeremy here with us. Um, he's in Brussels right now. And Jeremy has been finishing his PhD. And he um, is he's at the University of Namur. Is that right, Jeremy? Yes. Indeed. Indeed, you are. Okay, welcome. Welcome to the podcast, Hacker Cultures Podcast, aka the session for SE session. Um, why don't we take it away right away? Um, yeah, so where, yeah, where do you want to take us today? So, <clears throat> uh, as Paula knows, but as most of you don't know, I've been working since a few years on engineering practices. Uh, basically, I've tried to make sense through the use of observations interviews and archives of how engineers make and know algorithms. So that's the basic question that led my researchers. And here are the reflections I wanted to share with you today, uh, originating a series of computational experiments that were led between 2015 and 17 by a research engineer whose name is Robin. 
And uh, uh, I followed his experiments during my stay uh, at the Brussels Interdisciplinary Research Institute in Artificial Intelligence during that time. So in a nutshell, Robin was at the time uh, attempting to assess how good recurrent neural network were uh, when attempting or when, when they were used to um, build recommended systems. So that's what Robin was trying to achieve. And Robin, as a matter of fact, was one, uh, one of the few people that were trying to apply recurrent neural network to recommended systems at the time. So just quick precisions, recurrent neural, uh, neural networks simply are a kinds of machine learning algorithms that are traditionally used for predicting sequences and that are usually associated uh, with what is called deep learning. And recommended systems that normally most of us had an experience of, it basically is whatever system is used for fostering interactions between users and items, be it uh, viewing movies or viewing news uh, in a feed. So my point here today is not to take you through uh, the meanders of Robin's computational experiments, Mm. Um, my point would rather to be to discuss one, I would say, conclusion I've come to uh, while exchanging with him, while reading a uh, draft of his technical reports, while walking through different versions of his source codes or expl uh, exploring his experimental logs. So my, the, the conclusion or the proposition I would like to follow up and discuss with you is uh, um, that the rise of deep learning, so it's a uh, historical uh, hypothesis, significantly depended on both things, on two things, uh, the advent of graphical processing units that are manufactured by NVIDIA, AMD, or Intel, and the advent of novel computing libraries such as Theano, PyTorch, or TensorFlow. So I'll come back on on, on what these are later uh, in a bit. But the main point, uh, I think, comes with two kind of um, interesting conclusion, I believe. First, one, uh, one consequence of this hypothesis is that algorithms capacities may be unleashed by novel processing capacities. So it's obliges us to think about the interactions that happen between what we usually call software and what we usually call hardware. And the second point would be uh, to say that the libraries uh, usually enable engineers to maintain a fine balance between knowing uh, the interface the, uh, uh, of the library and not knowing how the library is actually made. So there is this, these would be the two points, two takeaways uh, that stems from this uh, historical hypothesis. Okay, okay. But Ander, maybe I'll stop you there because I think this is like classic sometimes, Jeremy. Let's back up for some people who need to know more. What is an algorithm? What do you, how do you define an algorithm or how do you define machine learning? Can you, can we back up for a moment and tell us a little bit more about yeah, what that, yeah. what, right. how do you find these? So um, an algorithm, I take an algorithm to be a formalized and stabilized computational technique that has the proper two properties, two main properties, I would say. One 
it has it can be recognized within a variety of inscriptions. These can be vernacular descriptions, uh, uh, pictorial diagrams, source or pseudocodes. Okay. And the second property would be that algorithm can be manipulated through a variety of actions. It can be mathematical demonstrations, it can be computing implementations, or it can be technical intuition. So this would be an algorithm. And I would add to that two more qualifications. So for a formalized and stabilized computational technique to deserve the name algorithm, I think it needs also, in some sense of the word, not to be trivial. That would be another point. You don't just call any function uh, an algorithm. And mm. the second uh, uh, qualification would be that it needs to travel somehow from place to place. So if one comes up with a non-trivial uh, uh, stabilized and formalized computer techniques. If you don't see it in different codes, in different systems, then it might not just be called an algorithm. So this would be uh, one thing for an algorithm. And then the question would be, what is machine learning? And so uh, let's not lose ourselves into it, but let's say that you will take here machine learning as um, referring to a set of practices and a set of techniques that are more or less related to statistical standards, statistical uh, uh, techniques or practices. And basically, they have in common that they enable engineers to build models for representing and intervening on our environment. Mm -hmm. And so here we have a black box with word, which is model. And so you can think of a model really as model in architecture. So a model is basically a surrogate device that enables ones by creating a very simple situation to think about and intervene uh, or prepare an intervention upon another situation. So a model is this kind of thing. And in our case, in the case of statistical and machine learning models, uh, uh, these are mathematical models involving uh, uh, numerical values yeah. and uh, mathematical expressions. So, and very roughly now, if you want to have an idea of how a machine learning algorithm works and how a recommended system works, uh, we can say that we have three main things. The first is, uh, the first component of a machine learning algorithm is a predictor. So basically, uh, it takes uh, a list of items of your past interactions and it produces the, a list of items which, with which you are the most likely to interact next. So that's the predictor. The predictor is that which that with which you have uh, daily interactions with when you get stuff recommended, and so that's one main component. And then the two other components, which are used only during learning phases, they can be uh, called an evaluator and a corrector. So the evaluator basically it takes uh, distant past interactions you had with movies, for instance. And it compares it uh, with recent past interactions. So basically, you, you make a prediction with distant past interactions. You predict movies that Pola or Masse is going to see. Mm -hmm. And then you compare if your prediction actually match with the recent past interactions. So it's an evaluation of how good the recommendations are. And the mm -hmm. last component, it takes this evaluation and in, it updates the model's parameters, the model's values, in order to improve uh, the score of the predictions. So that's mm -hmm. basically algorithm and machine learning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so that's like a lot of things. <laughs> and uh, can you like super quickly in yeah. like a very short time <laughs> and yeah. very clearly uh, kind of connect back to what you were starting from? Like, so, so what's the relationship between like deep learning and this process? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the point here is to say that basically recurrent neural network are around since late 80s, early 90s. The, var the various variations of these algorithms, they are around since this time and they're still in use right now. And mm -hmm. so the question is, how come Robin was one of the first to make computational experiments trying to put together recurrent neural networks and uh, uh, with a recommended system. And then the answer somehow is that before, recurrent neural networks were limited uh, in their abilities. They were limited in their abilities for two, for one main reason, let's say. Um, the, it was the processing uh, capacities. So basically, when you want to, do, to learn stuff with machine learning, you, you need a lot of computational power for two main reasons, mm -hmm. especially when you talk about neural network. First, you have lots of what's called matricial computation, okay? Mm -hmm. Or matricial multiplication, more exactly. Second thing you have is that you have a, a data set of millions of instances, and you have to iterate over the data set several times. So this makes... Uh, any learning, uh, very time consuming, it can take hours or days or weeks. And so these pre limitations prevented, basically they prevented uh, neural networks to be uh, widely used before. And that is because the standard processes we have were uh, basically assuming that we need to, they were basically optimizing uh, uh, the um, execution and the switches of one sequence of instructions. So you had one sequence of instruction coming one after another, and you needed to have very little time, take very little time to execute one instruction and to have very limited time between instructions. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing. It was sequential, pro sequential processes. And so what's, where graphical processing units comes in is that basically you have the game industry that's become that was becoming uh, larger and larger that was coming up with new problems and new computational problems and uh, it fostered the development of new kinds of processing units and mm. these processing units were answering and addressing needs that were mm. raised by games okay and mm. so the point is that instead when you do games let's be very schematical and, 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 and short, is when you do games, you have millions of pixels and you need to operate upon millions of pixels every, uh, uh, several times every second. So what you need is not to execute one instruction after another. You need to uh, execute several instructions in parallel. So basically you have a new processor and around 2006, these processors, uh, uh, engineers became able to uh, 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 interact with these processors directly, and uh, they could uh, harness the power of these processors in order to uh, um, develop bigger recurrent neural networks and in order uh, to train them at the same time on bigger 
data sets. So basically, the point here is that the development of deep learning, the advent of big learning depended centrally upon the advent of a very specific kind of architecture, which itself depended upon the development of uh, uh, the gaming cultural industry. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, okay. And you know, I, you love this next question that I always ask you, but why should we know this? Like what, what it, and also, I guess, why should we know this? But also, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to give kind of a genealogy of how machine learning developed? Are you trying to sort of uh, show sort of the practices of Robin and his interaction with, with his, the, his, what he sees as the algorithm? So it's why like do we want to know what it, exactly? So why do you, why do why should we know this and kind of what is your purpose? And we I kind of have to wrap it up so we have about three more minutes. Yeah, for all so, of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'll be uh, so quickly. I, I think first it's curiosity. That's the first sure. thing. I think it makes a quite nice story. Is uh, machine learning okay? Uh, uh, emerges at some point uh, for several reasons uh, we leave aside here. And then why do people make a fuss about something they call deep learning? And then when you look into that, actually what you find is that the gaming industry propels new kind of hardware, and that the new kind of hardware enabled uh, uh, new uh, machine learning applications. So I think this makes yeah. a nice, contingent, and expected story. So it has no interest except out of curiosity. Then I would say I would add two further points. One is it makes us think more specifically about uh, our technological development, technological history, and mm -hmm. how I said earlier, I think the main point was how something we consider separate as software on one side and hardware on another side actually interact and nurture each other. Exactly. And so the, this is key, I think, if you want to understand in the same time engineering practices, but also technological development. And the last point I would say is, and there again, there is an assumption that we want to understand or to develop a way to relate culturally to uh, both algorithmic objects and algorithmic practices. And I think in this case, I make one step towards this cultural understanding in the sense that I make very clear that Algorithms are uh, objects that are in the same time abstract mathematical objects with matricial operations, uh, convergence problems, and things like that. And in the same time, very concrete uh, computing uh, yeah. objects. Yeah. That you can buy from the shop. Yeah. No. That you can buy yeah. from the shop, yeah. Exactly. Indeed. Cool. Yeah, cool. this is interesting. And all of this will be in your book that yeah. you're writing. Exactly. I mean, I'm writing the thesis, but I was writing the book. <laughs> thesis is, will turn into books, hopefully, which I think. We're super excited to have you here, Jeremy, and thank you so much for sharing your research. That was really, really interesting. And please uh, email Jeremy if you have any other questions. We'll put up the email also on the chat. Um, and yeah, further questions later on. So yeah, I like so this much. sort of like engaged work. So th this makes me happy to hear that sort of close encounter with the material. Exactly. And I also really like showing me that you follow this one person. I find that really like, given very interesting ethnographic style and... Uh, you mean really creepy. Cool. Creepy, exactly. You're like a creepy stalker. Exactly. Um, so thank you so much. Give everyone, uh, or I guess, a round of applause, silent applause. 
This podcast series was hosted by Paula Bielski and Matze Oyala. It was produced by Heights Beats and Hot Milk Productions with funding from St. Gallen University. Thank you to all the panelists and audience members of the Hacker Cultures panel at the 4S and East 2020 conference on the theme of locating and timing matters, significance and agency of science and technology studies in emerging worlds. 